Revelation, and we're in chapter 2, verse 18. That's the letter to the church in Thyatira. So let's just read those verses, and then we'll try and do the sharing screen thing, so you don't have to look at me all night. Uh, verse 18, then, of chapter 2 of Revelation. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and patience, uh, and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, let's try sharing the screen now. There we go. That's not what I want. So I want share. There we go. Can we all see that? Yep. Are we there? Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is Thyatira. And uh, to start with, I think we need to find out just a little bit about it if we can. So here's a map of the part of the world, present-day Turkey, where all the seven churches were, and Thyatira is right there. Just to keep it in perspective with what we we're doing this morning, that is Antioch in Pisidia that we were speaking about in the morning service. And you remember the story how uh, uh, the missionary trip that Paul and Barnabas were on starts in Antioch in Syria, goes to Cyprus, and then comes up uh, through Perga to Antioch in Pisidia. Other towns that are worth looking at here, Ephesus, the big city, the second city in the empire after Rome, is just about 90 miles down the road from Thyatira. 40 miles up from there, there's a place called Pergamon, which you heard about from Mark Oliver, I think. And um, Thyatira was uh, built really to guard Pergamon. It was to be a garrison town that stopped people attacking Pergamon because Thyatira is in a valley that uh, defends the pass that you'd go through to get to Pergamon. So uh, the two of them are closely connected. Um, of the seven churches in Revelation, what do we know about Thyatira? Well, let's just talk about one or two things. First of all, it's a city that had often been overrun. There were seven different invading empires who took charge of Thyatira for a while, but every time somebody else came along and knocked them off and took it over instead. So it's a city that was 
let's say, not very easy to defend. <laughs> it was a city where it was easy to influence. It was easy to take over. And that was the history of the whole place uh, down through the years. It once been a frontier outpost. As I say, the rulers of Pergamum had built Thyatira to be a place from which they could defend uh, the city of, of Pergamum. But um, by the time that uh, this letter was written to them in the 90s AD, uh, first century, um, the city hadn't been attacked for almost 300 years. So it was an odd place because all of the implements of warfare, the old bastions, things like that, were around the place. There were still the memories of it being a military town. There was still the stamp of defensive works around the place. And yet they were crumbling into ruin. They weren't doing anything much. It wasn't defended anymore. It was in the valley, that's why. It was not in a strong position. Most towns in that area were built on the top of hills, as we shall see in a minute. But Thyatira was just open. It was easy to attack. It became a Roman colony in 25 BC. They were the seventh bunch of invaders who, who uh, took over the place. And so a colony meant, it was a bit like uh, Philippi. Do you remember in Philippians, Paul says to the Christians that they are a colony of heaven. That's because Philippi was a colony of Rome. If you'd served in the Roman army and you'd earned your pension, you would sometimes be given a patch of land to go and settle your family on. And it wouldn't be in Rome because there wasn't room in Rome for all the soldiers. So it'd be somewhere around the empire. So Philippi was a place where there were all sorts of Romans. And Thyatira, although it wasn't the same size as Philippi, was another of those. So you could speak Latin there and be understood, even though you're in the middle of, well, in those days, um, uh, Pisidia, uh, in, in, or Mysia rather, in our day, uh, Turkey. But uh, there was a whole mixture. It was a very cosmopolitan place. And that's partly because the emperor had imported lots of Jewish merchants to come and live there. He realized very early on that Thyatira was a great place to do trade from. You're right in the middle of the country there. You've got contact quite easily to Ephesus and big cities like that. You can send goods across to Rome quite easily. So Thyatira is a great trading place. And so merchants from Thyatira uh, were important. And the whole Jewish bunch were, were, were brought there. Do you remember when Paul went to Philippi and he went out of the city to the place down by the river where Jewish people met to pray? He met a lady who became a Christian. Her name was Lydia and she was a merchant from Thyatira. And she'd obviously come across to Philippi uh, to, to, to export the cloth that she sold uh, there. So Thyatira was a big uh, trading place and lots of the merchants were Jews. So uh, the, there was a Jewish, uh, Greek, Roman population, a right mixture, and it was an inclusive cosmopolitan society as a result. A couple more things about it. That we know from the inscriptions we found about around the place that we know of more trade guilds in that city than in any other city in the whole province of Asia, which is where it is. And that's saying something because Thyatira wasn't that big a place, but it was a merchant town. And so you have more trade guilds, trade associations where different kinds of things, the bronze makers, the cloth makers, uh, the slave traders, all kinds of people than in any other city in Asia. And all of this is a bearing on the letter we're going to be looking at. Their specialities included purple dyed cloth. There was a, a, a plant around there called a madder root that made a very rich red purple dye. And that was what Lydia sold. And that was what the city had built its wealth on. But they were also uh, keen on fine brass. And there's a special word used at the start of the letter here, uh, saying that Jesus' feet are like fine brass, shining fine brass. And the word that's used is a kind of brass that comes from Thyatira. 
You notice it's in all of the letters to the churches, don't you, that there are as many local references as possible worked in. Like in Laodicea, when you get there, it talks about eye salve, because they made an eye salve in Laodicea. And it talks about um, lukewarm water, because the springs in Laodicea were neither cold nor hot, they were just lukewarm. And, and, and so in all of the letters, you get these local references to say, we are talking to you. The spirit is interested in you. Jesus has his eye on you. And so it's the same in Thyatira. So you get the brass mentioned and uh, you get various other things as well, as we'll see in a moment. When John uh, wrote uh, Revelation, the city was just starting to take off. It was growing in wealth. The great years were probably going to be the, the second century after 100 uh, AD, but uh, it was already getting to its feet. The population was 25,000, which is a, a reasonable size for a growing city. And so in that city, a flourishing Christian church had started. How it started, we're not dead sure. We saw on the map how close Ephesus is, and it's possible that when Paul spent lots of time in Ephesus, the gospel had travelled up to Thyatira from there. On the other hand, it's not that far from Antioch and Pisidia. You know, there are lots of places from which people could have heard the gospel. At one stage or another, anyway, a good church had started in Thyatira. And as you've probably noticed in the letter, it has a pretty good reputation for the way it operates. But it was in a weak position. This is Pergamum that you were hearing about before. And uh, Pergamum is built on the top of a hill. Very difficult place to attack, as you can see. Uh, if invaders approach, you can see them from a long way away and you just retreat to the top of the hill and they have a hard job pushing you off it. This is Sardis, where we're going next week. And Sardis was especially steep. And uh, we'll talk about that next week. And it was right on the top of a hill as well. The Acropolis, the steep walls meant, meant it was almost impregnable. And people thought you can never take Sardis militarily. They were wrong, but that's a story for next week. Okay, so that's Sardis. This is Thyatira. <laughs> you can see no hills, just completely flat. Great place to be a trader. You can get your wagons in and out, no problem whatsoever, but not a great place if you're trying to defend it militarily. And so Thyatira was that kind of place, a city that was always being overrun or had been down through history, a city which had all the trappings of warfare around it and yet wasn't ready for battle. And the church was a bit like that. But before we get to that, what is it that makes this letter different from the others in, in the list of seven? There are three things I can think. First of all, this one is the longest of the seven letters. The Spirit has more to say to Thyatira than to any of the others. And that's because it's a more complicated situation than any of the others. They were all in a different situation from one another. But in Thyatira, there were great things going on. And there are terrible things starting to creep in. And so just disentangling that takes more space and a longer letter than anything else you get. And if nothing else, the letter to Thyatira reminds us that the life, taking the pulse of a church can be a tricky thing. In the life of a church, there can be lots of different influences going on at the same time. And it's often very, very hard to assess exactly where it's going and what the key things are. Thyatira was an interesting, complicated case. But this was the least of the cities. Might be the longest letter, but Thyatira of the seven uh, cities that receive letters in the book of Revelation is the smallest. And people in those days must have looked at the seven letters and said, yeah, okay, Ephesus, I understand. Laodicea, that's okay. Sardis, that's important too. Oh, Smyrna, yeah, that's an important city. But Thyatira, come on, give us a break. It's like saying, you know, the key towns in Devon are Exeter, Paynton, Torbay, and uh, Zeal Monocorum which is a little village up in mid-Devon. It's, it, it it's not on the same level. It's tiny. 
So why is it important? Well, I think it's because some of the tendencies that were going on in Thyatira were the sorts of tendencies that have influenced the churches, big or small, in cities down through the years, down through the centuries, and it's important they got spelled out. The third thing, though, that you notice about this letter to Thyatira is it's the one letter in Revelation that talks about Jesus as the Son of God. You know, at the start of each of the seven letters, Jesus is described in, in, in a different way. But this is the only one that mentions the Son of God. Now, why is that? Well, we'll talk about that in a moment. No, we'll talk about it now. Sorry, I forgot this was coming up here. This is a coin from Thyatira, and it shows you on the one side, that's the right-hand side, Turimnos. Now, he was the local god who had been worshipped in Thyatira for many, many years. But as I've said, Thyatira was an inclusive kind of a place. So um, when people from other backgrounds moved into Thyatira, they just said, OK, fair enough. Here's our god. We worship him. But he can be your god as well. And so Thyatirimnos, uh, rather, was associated with Apollo, the Greek god Apollo. And Apollo was the son of Zeus, the king of the gods. So Apollo was worshipped as the son of God. And that's used about Turimnos as well. Who is he shaking hands with here on the left? Well, that's the Roman emperor. And the emperor Augustus claimed to be the son of God as well. <laughs> so what this letter is saying right from the outset is forget those local gods that claim to be the son of God. Forget the emperor who politically claims to be the son of God. I am the real son of God. I am where the power rests in the universe. I am the only force in life that you really need to pay attention to, but you do need to listen to me because I am the son of God. So that's where we're coming in. And uh, this letter to Thyatira, I think there's three things going on in it. As you'll see, this graphic I found on the internet seems to suggest that the letter to Thyatira was posted from Chagford um, in 1959 with a Tuppany stamp. That is not exactly accurate, but it was a nice picture, so I put it in anyway. What do we get in the letter to Thyatira? First of all, it talks about what they were doing right. And there's a lot there. Second, it talks about what they were getting wrong. And that's where it starts getting pretty complicated. And third, as with all of the letters, at the end, there are promises made. And so the third thing we need to look at is what they were actually promised. So let's look at those three things, one by one after another. First of all, what were they doing right? What were they getting right in Thyatira? Uh, the letter lists four different things and then says what the result of those four things was. I think in the New International Version, they come across as groups, this and that, this and that. But it's not like that in the Greek. It's just this, and then this, and then this, and then this, producing that. And so what are those five things that are piled on top of one another? Well, the first one is love. You remember how Paul says there are uh, three things that endure, and the greatest of these is love. Without love, we are nothing. Love is at the foundation of everything. And so uh, looking at a church, that's the first thing you look for. Where is the love of God in it? And Thyatira was a church that was distinguished for its love. And when the, the spirit says, uh, the, 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 the letter says, I know your works. The first thing that sticks out is love. That should be the same for all of us, shouldn't it? In any church that people come to looking for reality, looking for answers, the first thing they should encounter should be love. But love on its own is not enough. There are lots, there's lots of love around in the world. And at the moment, we're hearing about some great things that people are doing in our society to help others with no thought of reward. 
just because there's an, a pandemic going on. And the problem is, of course, that can be a short-term thing. The love can soon go away when the immediate problem that stirs our emotions is no longer there. But uh, Paul says, uh, the, the letter says it's not just love in Thyatira, there's also faith. And faith means trusting somebody else to do something for you that you can't do for yourself. So the Spirit is saying to the church, listen, I know that you're showing lots of love and it's not just from yourselves. It's not just natural affection. It's not just the fact that you're lovely people. It comes from your faith. And it's because you belong to Jesus, because you're allowing him to do things in you that you can't do for yourself, you're able to love the unlovely. You're able to love your brothers and sisters in an unconditional way. And the love just keeps on pouring out because it's ultimately it's not your love. It's the love of God that's shed abroad in your heart through the Holy Spirit that's given to you. So there's love and that love keeps going because of the faith. But there's more than that. There's also service. Because if there's real love and there's real faith in, option, in, in operation, then that's going to produce service as well. It's going to pour out and reach the rest of the world as well. And you're going to serve one another. You're going to serve your community. You're going to serve those who are in need. And service, doing something about your faith, is, is, is there in Thyatira too. It's not just that people come to services and say, oh, we love one another, that's great. And we do believe in Jesus, but I don't think we'll do anything till next Sunday. No, it's not like that. They're out there doing things. They're expressing their faith in all sorts of different ways and putting that love into action in people's lives. Love, faith, service. Now, there are many churches in the world that keep going like this for quite a while and then sort of peter out, lose their energy. And Paul says there's another thing. There's perseverance. You keep going. When things happen that, that uh, upset the apple cart, when uh, obstacles come in the way, when you get discouraged by things outside, you just keep on going through it. Love, faith, service. Love, faith, service. And you just carry on and carry on and carry on. Those are all great things for a church. And so that, says, that he says, uh, ends in another thing. If you've got love, faith, service and perseverance, then you've got growth. The, the works you're doing now, he says, are greater than you did to start with. You'd never have dreamt when the church started in Thyatira how much more you'd be doing now. But God keeps on multiplying your ministry and making you do more and more and takes you into more and more exciting adventures because you love one another. That love comes from God. It expresses itself in service and you just keep going. And so God keeps growing his work at the same time. All of this you're doing right. And then uh, the letter says, I know your works, but I have this against you. And it talks about a woman called Jezebel. Now, we don't know who Jezebel was. It sounds as if she was a member of the church. There's a, the, the possibility that she's a pagan prophetess, but it sounds to me as if she's somebody actually inside the church. The, the, the phrase, that woman Jezebel, could also be translated, your wife Jezebel. So some people think that uh, Jezebel was actually the wife of the leading brother in the church. Mm, could be, might be, we just don't know. But we do know that this woman, whoever she was, was having a big impact on the church because she claimed to be a prophetess. So what were they getting wrong? Well, he talks about this. First of all, they're following false authority. They're taking what Jezebel says as the word. This is what we've got to do. And Jezebel is going away from scripture and seducing, it says, my servants, enticing them by teaching that sounds a lot nicer than what you find in the Bible, just to 
to, to moderate their faith, to change it, to do things a different way. As a result of that, there's moral unfaithfulness going on. She's seducing them, it says, to practice sexual immorality. Now, again, scholars argue, but does this really mean, you know, sex, illegal sex, or, or you shouldn't be having? Or is it a, a picture language for just following wrong doctrine and going off astray? Well, knowing the Roman Empire, it probably is actual sex, but we don't know for sure. We don't know the details. All we can say is what this verse is telling us is that in various ways, and it might be sexual, and it might not. If you follow false authority, you're going to slip into moral unfaithfulness sooner or later. And that's happening to some people in the church. Now, it's not true of everybody in the church. There are plenty of people, as the letter says, who are not going that way. But moral unfaithfulness is part of the package. And as a result of that, there's also compromised behavior going on to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. That was a, a, a big issue amongst Christians in those days. Do you eat food sacrificed to idols or do you not? Um, because when food had been taken into a pagan temple and offered to uh, you know, a statue of a god, um, so not surprisingly, the god didn't actually eat any. So you take it out afterwards. And of course, it was the best food because, you know, you'd only take the best into the temple. Then you'd have to sell it off in the evening. Cheap. And so some Christians were saying, oh, we can't touch this stuff. It's been in an evil temple. It must be satanic and demonic and ooh, all sorts of evil things. And other Christians were saying, no, 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 that's just paganism. Oh, I mean, we can just get cheap food here and thank God for it. Oh, everything made by God is good and is to be received with thanksgiving. And so there's this tension going on. Now, what's the answer? Do you eat food offered to idols or do you not? The answer seems to be from the New Testament, you do different things in different places. It depends on your culture. And it depends on what other people are going to think of you when you do so. Clearly in Thyatira, it was wrong. If they ate food offered to idols, it would lead people locally to say, look at them. They claim to be Christians, but look at what they're doing. They're just as pagan as any of us. And so Jezebel seduces her followers into compromised behavior, things that make people look at Christians and say, ah, they're nothing very much. They're all hypocrites. It's all just a sham. The end result of this, though, is that if you go along that way that takes you further and further away from the Bible, you end up going into a special kind of religion by yourself. The deep secrets of Satan is what it's called here. And probably the letters being ironic. Oh yeah, deep secrets. They think they're getting deeper and deeper into special exciting truth, which ordinary Christians don't have. But actually it's not that great. It's Satan that's behind it. So they're not really deep secrets at all. We see that kind of thing in, right down through Christian history, don't we, again and again. Rasputin, in the, the days just before the Russian Revolution, was able to get all sorts of society ladies like these here, uh, to join his cult because he taught that um, in order to know God's forgiveness at a deep level, you have to sin deeply too. And so the more you sin, the more forgiveness you get. So whoopee, let's take our clothes off and get on with it. And uh, that sort of behavior has happened again and again through history. The children of God back in the 1970s, um, who started as, a, as a, basically a Christian youth group with a strong, keen determination to, to learn as much scripture as possible and share their faith as widely as possible. They ended up uh, by following their one leader, their Jezebel, 
into oh, prostitution for evangelism's sake, into child sex and all sorts of things you don't really want to talk about. And so it goes on, the Moonies and their heavenly deception. It's okay to tell lies if it's for the sake of Jezebel, Sun, Myung Moon, uh, even uh, in, in brethren circles, the, the, the exclusive brethren, and Big Jim Taylor, who became their boss, their prophet, the one who, who, who led them from being a, a fairly straight-laced kind of group to being a group in which uh, whiskey and drunkenness became common, in which jokes and, and, and vulgarity were, were, were around the place at Bible studies, in which he was sleeping around with, with people in the group and, and doing all sorts of, of, of things that are just completely immoral. But because he was the leader, people went along with it. Deep secrets? No, they're not. It's just shallow immorality. But, says the letter, this is the way that some of you people are going to go. Now, it's difficult in Thyatira because we all have this question of how do I live in a world in which people live a different life from my life and still stay faithful to God without being just completely shunned by everybody? And one of the big problems in Thyatira, a trading place as it was, was that you had all of these uh, trade guilds. See, each trade would have its own sort of setup where merchants would come together and form a special club. This is a slab that tells us the names of some of the people that belonged to one of the societies of that type in those days. This one's from Rome. But uh, here's a, a slab from a place called uh, Luniavo uh, to the southeast of Rome, which uh, and, and the, what you have chiseled into the stone here, into the marble, is uh, a list of rules for a, a society uh, of, of people who had got together to, 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 to share their money. They were in the same job. They wanted to help one another, arrange funerals and things like that. And the rules talk about the banquets that they held six times a year, the worship services they held as part of those banquets, which were worshipping uh, the goddess Diana and uh, another fellow who'd just become a god six years before and, and so on and so forth. And Christians, if they wanted to be merchants in Thyatira, pretty much had to belong to one of those things. The trouble was, if you belonged to a trade association, although it was great, it allowed you to trade, it allowed you to share resources with other merchants, it meant that they would look out for you, nobody would cheat you, you'd be able to present a, a united front to the public and fix prices together and all that sort of stuff. Although you could do that, at the same time, you were going to be in serious trouble because you had to go into the fe feasts at which everybody got drunk and you had to go through the pagan worship. What did you do? And uh, the letter to Thyatira is saying, listen, don't compromise. Don't be like your city, which is defenseless and can be conquered by everybody. Don't let people get into this good thing that you've got going with all the love and faith and perseverance and service going on. Don't let that growth stop just because of evil influences that get in. Keep yourselves away from the world because he says the Lord is going to come and judge. This cannot go on forever. And what's God going to do? How does God judge? Well, first of all, it says he doesn't judge immediately. Jezebel, I've given her time to repent and she's not taken it. God doesn't come in and, uh, and put in the, the boot straight away. God gives us time to turn around. But if we're not careful, we can take that for granted and think he doesn't really care. Yes, he does, says this letter. And God will come and bring uh, reality through suffering. Jezebel is going to be cast on a sickbed. Her children are going to suffer too. And it's going to be pretty direct punishment. It's going to be decisive. I will kill her children with death, says the Greek, uh, literally. It's, I won't let this go on. I will just stop it. 
you remember how in Corinthians, First Corinthians, it talks about uh, people who are, 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 are mistreating the bread and the wine in the communion service. And it says, chillingly, for this cause, some have even fallen asleep. God takes people home if they stand out deliberately and persistently against what is right and they know to be right. God judges in full view as well. All the churches will know that I'm doing this. God does not leave us in a situation where we, 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 we think, oh, we can do anything and get away with it. God judges, not straight away, but in the end he does judge. But that's not how he leaves it. Because what about the people in the church who are not part of Jezebel's schemes? What are they promised? Well, there are two promises at the end of this letter. And in each of the letters, as you must have noticed, the promises are a little bit different from one another. What have we got here? First of all, I will give him authority over the nations, he says. Now, this is a staggering promise to make to a tiny little place like Thyatira. William Ramsey, the great archaeologist I mentioned this morning, says this when he's commenting on this letter. It could not escape the attention of an Asian reader at this time that this irresistible power and strength were promised to the city, which was at that time the smallest and feeblest. And what the letter is saying is, listen, you think you're weak, you think you're feeble, you think you can't do anything, you think you're just a small church, you are going to be big. You're going to be part of, of, of the victory of Jesus over the planet. The phrases that are used here about authority over the nations come straight from Psalm 2, which was the coronation psalm used for an Israelite king. And it's a psalm that Paul and the other evangelists in the New Testament used again and again to say, look, this talks about Jesus and the victory and the kingship that he's going to have. So to say, I will give him authority over the nation says, you're going to be part of that too. You are part of Jesus' new government. You are part of Jesus' authority. Treat yourself that way and don't let yourself be seduced into anything degraded or shallow like Jezebel offers you. And the second thing, because we've got to finish this here, um, is I will give him the morning star. What does that mean? Well, basically, um, uh, in Thyatira, uh, there, there was a worship of most of the Greek gods, but the one they would know that was uh, associated with the original Jezebel back in the Old Testament, the wife of the king who had brought in foreign religion into the land of Israel, that was the goddess Astarte or Ishtar. And she was always shown when she was uh, uh, put in a carving like this with the morning star around her because she was the goddess of the morning star. And so Jezebel was saying to people, I will give you the morning star. I will give you a religion that's much more easy to follow than the, the Christianity you know already. And you will have all the spiritual power you can hope for. And what the letter is saying is, look, you won't get it that way. The morning star will come to you if you only hold fast to what you've got already. At the end of Revelation, in the very last few verses, you read about the morning star again. And Jesus says, I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. You get the morning star when you get Jesus. One of the old uh, brethren writers of the 19th century wrote a hymn that's not sung much nowadays, and I'm going to finish with this. It says this, I am looking at the brightness 
see it shineth from afar of the clear and joyous beaming of the bright and morning star. Through the dark grey mist of morning do I see its glorious light, then away with every shadow of this sad and weary night. I am waiting for the coming of the Lord who died for me. Oh, his words have filled, thrilled my spirit. I will come again for thee. I can almost hear the footfall on the threshold of the door, and my heart, my heart is longing to be with him evermore. So the Spirit says, Thyatira, all you have to do is hold fast. Let's just pray together for a second, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to look at this passage tonight. There's been so much in it. It's been frustrating just to have to, to race through it at this speed, but I pray that you will help us all take what it has to teach us to heart. Help us be people of love and faith and service and perseverance. And as a result, may the work of great parks and may the, the influence of the Spirit through our lives and our communities be more and more and more. And help us not be seduced by anything substandard or evil that makes life easy artificially. But help us hold fast to what we know and look for the coming of the bright and morning star. Because we ask it for your namesake. Amen.